You nailed it. <laughs> Could have been better. <laughs> yeah, my, my dad, Rob, is the normal speaker here. He's out of town this week, and normally they do watch online, so that's good to know that they're seeing all this, but from afar and can't do anything about it, just the way we want. Uh, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. My name's Janelle. I'm really thankful for the opportunity to share here this morning. Rob is the normal speaker. He's also my dad and my boss, which is a fun dynamic. <laughs> Growing up in a Christian home was interesting for us because while we were always Christian, there is a very dramatic shift in how we lived that Christianity out. And that shift started when my parents left the crazy church. So everybody heard of the crazy church? My dad refers to them affectionately that way. This was a church that my parents and actually our whole family attended when my parents were in their early 20s. And it was a church that was highly legalistic, very controlling, and very, very judgmental. And you had to do all of these things a very specific way in order to be made right with God. So that shift in my upbringing began when my parents left the crazy church or the controlling church. And it took years of unlearning what was taught there. We went, I went as a child from a very strict form of Christianity to living out a grace-filled version of it. We always worshiped the same God and we always read the same Bible, but there is a clear distinction of before and after when it comes to how we lived our daily lives. Now, I was pretty little when this transition into grace began. My sister, who is four years older than me, she doesn't know I was going to mention her today. <laughs> she has more war stories about that time than I do. There's one story that I remember hearing about, which is at that time, the Bible was used as our reasoning for why we did everything. You know, we dress this way because the Bible tells us, and we avoid these places because of the Bible, and we do this and we do that because of the Bible. Well, one day... She was told by my parents, hey, you need to eat this banana. And she really didn't want to eat a banana. And so she came up with the most ironclad argument a Christian has ever had. She said, my Bible says I don't have to eat bananas. <laughs> well, I mean, if the Bible says it, who's going to argue with that, right? This book that is so important to us that we read aloud from it every single week. It's that important. This book that is so important to us, we make sure every Sunday that we are together, we read from it. The words out of this book for years, people use the words in these books to crush my family. How does this book change from being weaponized to a source of refuge? If you've seen Christmas Vacation, you can maybe imagine the way that that's said. If you haven't seen Christmas Vacation, just focus on the grace word. <laughs> I believe that grace, I believe that remembering God's grace is the road that takes this book from a weapon to a refuge. Amen. But that being said, 
I'm still kind of always ready for it to sting like it did before. I don't know if anyone else has ever felt that way. Or maybe we've unintentionally flinched out of fear by words of the Bible. And now what we're reading today is an example of that for me, a little bit. When I first read it, it was like, ooh. (laughs) But I really enjoy being able to teach on these challenging verses because where I would normally flinch and close the book and maybe look at something else, I'm forced to examine these verses. I'm forced to look at these verses and examine what it is that I am really afraid of. And luckily, because of how I was raised, I get to look at these verses through the lens of grace. Last week, we taught on Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, and we learned the famous story of Zacchaeus. And what Rob spoke on was something that I had never really thought about before, and that is that the crowds were becoming a barrier to Jesus. Zacchaeus could not get to Jesus because the crowds were stopping him. And in order for Zacchaeus to see Jesus, he had to climb a tree. It was a really convicting message about understanding our place as Christians, understanding that we are meant to help people get to Jesus, not hinder. We learned that Zacchaeus was a head tax collector, and it's not a far stretch to assume that he was probably very hated among the people at that time. And in those verses, Jesus does what he does best by showing everybody what his true mission is. He shows everybody that he does not need protection. And he shows consistency in having no regard for his reputation. And he invites himself over to the head tax collector's house. And it's in that interaction of grace and love poured out to Zacchaeus from Jesus that Zacchaeus' life is changed. And he goes from being a head tax collector to turning around and giving extravagantly and generously to those who he had hurt before. So that brings us to today's verses. We're going to start with verse 11. We're just going to read. Oh, we're just going to start with the first verse and then we'll go a little bit more after that. The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. So this verse reminds me of how my daughter will tell stories. She'll come into the room and say, and that's why two should work, but only on Wednesday. And I'll be like, I don't know what you're talking about. You didn't explain anything to me just then. You have to start from the beginning. These verses require a lot of, this verse requires lots of questions in order to understand what it's explaining, just like with my daughter. Uh, Same thing with these verses. When it says, uh, when it says the crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. So my translation was different. (laughs) So my notes are messed up a little bit, but uh, so this actually gives more more context than I had. But it says the crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. And it says because he was nearing Jerusalem. Well, we need to know why is Jerusalem important? Why does that matter? And he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. Well, what's the kingdom of God? And what does it mean by begin right away? So if you've been keeping up with the gospel of Luke, 
and following along with us, maybe this is pretty easy to understand, but I do just want to take some time and explain the context of this verse. And the reason I want to do that is because context is really important when we're reading the Bible. While we, when we look at verses or stories outside of context, they become easy to manipulate, which is part of the reason that we do expository teaching here at Eastgate. And expository teaching is when we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Because we don't want it to be that I just grab some random verses that back up a narrative that I'm trying to push. We make sure that the speakers here are held accountable to the text and the context of what is being said. And I do want to clarify that doesn't mean people who do topical teachings or churches like that are bad. There's lots of great ones out there. I am just saying context is really important when we're reading the Bible. So the context of this is that Jesus is speaking to crowds. It mentioned in the last 10 verses that there are crowds there as well. So there's a chance these are the same crowds that were blocking Zacchaeus. We don't know for sure. He's going to Jerusalem. And that's important because we know what happens in Jerusalem, I think. I don't think that's a spoiler. And Jesus knows what's about to happen in Jerusalem. But the crowds there are following him because they think he's the Messiah. Like, I think we found the Messiah we've been waiting for. And the idea that they have in their brain is a Messiah going to sit like on a golden throne and raining fire down from heaven and finally defeating these Roman oppressors. So Jesus, seeing that this is not going to go down the way that they think it will, decides to tell them a story. So let's read the story that he tells them. In verse 12, it says, He said, a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and divided them 10 pounds of silver, saying, invest this for me while I'm gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want him to be our king. We're going to read the whole parable. After he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. The first servant reported, Master, I invested your money and I made 10 times the original amount. Well done, the king exclaimed. You are a good servant. You've been faithful with the little I entrusted you, so you will be governor of 10 cities as your reward. The next servant reported, Master, I have invested your money and I made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You'll be governor of five cities. But the third servant brought back only the original amount of of money and said, Master, I hid your money and I kept it safe. I was afraid because you're a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops you didn't plant. You wicked servant, the king roared. Your own words condemn you. If you knew that I'm a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvests crops I didn't plant, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then, turning to the others standing nearby, the king ordered, Take the money from this servant and give it to the one who has ten pounds. But master, they said, he already has ten pounds. Yes, the king replied, and to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. So, You know how Rob always says, we don't do this well. And that's okay because we don't have to do things well in order to belong to the kingdom of God. Well, I'm thinking that the third guy in this story might have to disagree. (laughs) 
I mean, he didn't do this well, and the king noticed and was real, real mad when he came back. And I've got to be honest, I struggled with these verses at first. How does this fit under the grace lens? Where's the grace, Jesus? And you know, those insecurities of thinking that God is disappointed in me for not doing this better, those insecurities never really go away. I do my best to quiet those insecurities. I do my best not to allow those insecurities to dictate my choices. But those insecurities have yet to leave me. I don't know if it's okay to be that honest up here. To say that, uh, that I don't have this figured out perfectly the way I wish I did. Or to say, as Rob would say, I don't do this well. And these verses did not help to silence those insecurities. Because after initially reading them, my thoughts were, so God is watching. (laughs) Just to confirm. (laughs) Or those insecurities that say, you better do a good job because you know he's keeping track. You know he's keeping track of what you do. Or you know he's coming back one day and he's going to look at your life and realize all the places you could have done so much better. While those insecurities exist, I'm determined, determined not to land there. And I believe that in seeking Jesus and remembering his grace that I so deeply depend on, we can find a way to understand these verses in a way that lines up with the rest of the gospel, in a way that lines up with the beautiful story of grace that we learned about just last week with Zacchaeus. I believe that this parable, though, no matter how we look at it, is teaching us that Jesus has given us a purpose while we wait for his return. The question is, what exactly is that purpose? So let's start looking at the context again. We know that parables, based on the other parables that have been taught, are never really about what's on the surface. Just like the parable of the gardener spreading the seeds around, that was not teaching us practical ways to garden. So what is this parable trying to teach us? Let's first start by kind of breaking down the characters and seeing who we think each one could represent. I think that it's safe to say that the person who is going to become king and then return one day, I think it's safe to assume that would be Jesus. Feels pretty good, you know? It works because Jesus is literally on his way to Jerusalem. And also, he's going to return one day. So that's another check mark in the Jesus column. So I feel good about that. The servants, we could argue, would maybe be the disciples, but really I think it could be anybody that is following Jesus. Anybody that is, claims themselves, decides that they are a follower of Jesus. So really any Christian would be, I would consider a servant. The person that we are serving is Jesus, who would be the king in this story. So math checks out. And then it says the subjects hated him. So there's like the third character would be the subjects who hated him and sent a delegation after him to stop him from becoming king. And what's interesting about this parable is that something almost exactly like this happened at that time. Herod the great son, when he was going to Rome to become crowned king, as is the custom, a delegation followed behind him. 
saying, not this one. He's the worst. No, boo. So this story is familiar to the people at that time. You know, the way we have to sit and kind of process and think about it, this is an easy connection. And I don't know how significant that story is to this, except that it would be, would be something that they're familiar with. So who were the subjects that hated him representing in this story? You know, we could probably easily say, oh, it's the religious leaders of that time. Like, they hated Jesus. It's them. But really, I think we could say anybody who's just adamantly opposed to Jesus. That's maybe our present day version of that. So he gives 10 of these servants some money. And I do want to clarify, there's a parable that's really similar to this taught in Matthew. Um, There is some differences, though, because it was taught just to the disciples and not a crowd. It's different amounts of money, but I think the lesson takeaways are about the same. So he gives 10 of his servants some money. He says, hey, take this money, take care of it, and put it to good work while I come back, while I'm gone. And when the king comes back, he checks on what everybody did while he was away. And we can say that it's probably safe to say that the money in this parable wasn't probably actually representing money. You know, again, with the parable of the gardener spreading the seeds around, that was about sharing the gospel. That was not about gardening. So if we're the servants in this parable and Jesus is the king, that means he's given us something to put to good use while he's gone. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is it that Jesus has given us? And at first, when I was thinking this through, I was like, oh, maybe it's like talents. Like, what are the different talents Jesus has given all of us? Like, if he's given me the talent of singing, then it's my responsibility to make sure as many people hear me singing as possible, and I'm multiplying the audience instead of, like, hiding my gift in the shower. But that doesn't really make sense to me. (laughs) Hopefully it doesn't make sense to y'all either. (laughs) Because everyone was given the same thing. Everyone was given the same amount of the same thing. So then the question becomes, what is something that Jesus has given all of us the same amount? So let's ask ourselves that. Let's think on that for a second. What's something Jesus has given every single one of us the same amount? I would say forgiveness is something that we all have the same amount of. I don't think I have more or less than the person next to me. I'd say he's given all of us grace. He's shared his love with all of us. He showed humility to everybody. He gave the gift of a listening ear to our prayers. He sacrificed himself on the cross, and that was for all of us. He gave us the gift of salvation. These gifts that I just mentioned, and maybe more that y'all came up with in your head, they all go together. And they're all put together in the good news story of the gospel, which is given freely to all of us. And when I think of it this way, it begins to make sense to me. And it begins to make sense, especially in the context of Zacchaeus and what we just learned about with the crowds blocking him from seeing Jesus, trying to keep Jesus for themselves. And I believe that this parable is teaching us that our purpose is to share and not hide the gift of salvation. And that's the thing about sharing the gift that Jesus has given us. Sharing the gift is the only way that we multiply it. 
that is how it is multiplied, is by sharing. We are not invited to keep this to ourselves and safely hidden from others. We are called to share extravagantly and generously with those around us. And let's look at this parable and think about it. The first person and the second person did different amounts. They shared different amounts. One was 10 and one was five, and they both got a good job. This isn't about being the most. This is about sharing in contrast to hiding. We don't want to say to anyone that asks us about Jesus, I'm not allowed to talk about him. (laughs) Or we don't want to say, well, he saved me, but I don't know if he could do that for you. I mean, we laugh about it, and I'm being silly when I say it, but there is a thought. There is something we need to stop and think about. Which people or people groups do we feel don't belong in this room with us? We want to open ourselves up to that possibility that that there are people out there that exist and work on ways we can be letting that guard down and sharing instead of hiding. We don't want to be like the crowds we learned about last week who were blocking Zacchaeus from Jesus, possibly because they thought he was too much of a sinner, possibly because they didn't want to have to be with him while they followed the Messiah. Jesus does not need our protection. If people want to learn about Jesus, it is our job, it is our purpose to look for ways that we can be a bridge and not a barrier to Jesus. We must stop and ask ourselves, who is the Zacchaeus person in our life? What person or people group are we unintentionally or intentionally trying to block from this? I I don't want to be someone that just adds to the noise. We have so much of that. I want to be somebody that is in harmony, somebody that works in harmony. My actions are in harmony with God's plan. And Jesus is challenging us here that to be in harmony with God's plan, instead of responding to hate with more hate, we respond with the gift of forgiveness. Instead of trying to prove that we have this all figured out, we respond with humility. Instead of judgment, even in the places where it feels very well deserved, we look for ways that we can be responding with the gift of compassion. We look for ways that instead of having our arms crossed or using them to push people away, we use our arms to welcome people in. I believe here, I believe that this parable, we can learn from it to ask God to enable the Holy Spirit to show places in our lives, to highlight places in our lives where we can be working on this, where we can be finding ways to live this out in our everyday life. Okay, so we have one more verse to read, and everybody buckle up because it's a fun one. Okay, and as for these enemies of mine who didn't want me to be their king, bring them in and execute them right here in front of me. Cool. Cool. Cool, 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 cool. So I want to say, first of all, that I did not write this. (laughs) And I don't make the rules. (laughs) I do, however, choose to be obedient to God. 
and whoever he presents himself to be, not the image that I want him to be. And if we think that this is cruel, how Jesus would do this, I want to point out a few things. One, this is a parable. It lines up closely with another story that just happened. So there's a chance Jesus is just referencing something that actually happened at that time or kind of contrasting how kingdoms of this world operate. Two, this is a parable. (laughs) We see the king represented as Jesus, but that doesn't mean this is exactly what Jesus would do. This is meant to provide imagery to get us thinking for ourselves the concepts and not the rules. That being said, the Bible makes it clear over and over and over that life outside of God results in death. And as I said, I don't make the rules. And if this feels yucky, like if we're like, oh, I don't like that. This feels yucky. I don't want people to die. If it feels yucky to us, then we can know we're in good company with God, who's even more compassionate than we are. He's fighting even harder than we are to save everybody. These verses do, though, remind us that it's only through Jesus that we are saved. I know for me, I want to be really careful about cherry-picking the parts of the gospel I like and ignoring the rest. Because when we cherry-pick... The gospel. When we cherry pick the gospel, we find ourselves right back at the beginning of this book with Adam and Eve, who decided for themselves what was right and wrong instead of relying on God and His wisdom. Whether I like everything that Jesus says, whether I like it or not, is really not the point. The point is that I trust Jesus, I believe that He is God. I believe that he has a plan to rescue everybody. I believe that he loves us and he is strong. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And let's, let's think about this parable. Let's go back to this parable for a second. The king, the man represented to be the king, leaves to become crowned king and returns one day. So if this was Jesus, what happened when he left to become crowned king? What crown was Jesus given? Where does he get it? Jesus is given a crown of thorns, and instead of a golden throne, he's nailed to a bloody cross. And he does that in victory not in loss. Even from the most broken of places, Jesus reigns over the earth. So that means by verse 27, when the king has returned, Jesus would have died on the cross already at that point in the story. Jesus would have died already to save these people who did not want him. And it's up to each one of us to decide which character we want to be in this story. We make that decision for ourselves. And when we look these verses in the eye, unafraid of what they might challenge within ourselves, 
Let's remember that in in this story of these men dying for the king, let's remember that the king died for them first. So when we leave here today, let's remember that we don't have to be afraid of this book. We don't have to be afraid of the living word of God. I'm here on the other side of a controlling church story to say we don't have to be afraid of this book. This book is an important tool in our walk with God. And it's meant to bring us closer to understanding who God is, who Jesus died to save, and what we can be doing while we wait for his return. We all have a purpose. Every single one of us has a purpose. And what I love about the purpose given to us in this parable is that it leaves plenty of room for us to explore and follow the passions that we have. Those things that make us unique or those places that we feel God has called us to. We get to live those things out while also following our purpose. And our purpose is to share and not hide the good news of Jesus. There's plenty to go around in keeping the love and forgiveness and grace to ourselves is a waste of time and it's a waste of resources. There's plenty to go around. We are called to share generously and extravagantly with everyone around us. We're called to share that God knows us and loves us, that he has a plan for us. We're called to share that Jesus died for us so that we may live. Sound good? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for everything you have done and all the gifts that you've given us, even more than the ones that were listed here today. I pray that you continue to show us what it is you want us to be doing while we wait for your return. And we thank you for the grace that you offer in the meantime. In Jesus' name, amen.